So when we ask, what is a Sangoma? It's one of my most beautiful things around how our African languages are embodied. So Sangoma means person of song and dance and drum. Welcome to Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara. I'm your host, Dr. Tara, and I've been actively reinventing myself since I discovered the power of neuroplasticity. I have transformed myself personally, professionally, emotionally, and spiritually. And I'm here to show you that no matter your age or mindset, you can do it too. And because we're all about reinvention, season two is going to be quite different to season one. The episodes will be released weekly, and we've listened to your feedback and decided to go ad-free. There's a strong theme of ancient wisdom, which made me realize that the things we need to flourish in life, love, health, and work have been hiding in plain sight for millennia. I hope this season is as impactful for you as it is for me. In this episode, we'll be sitting down with a self-proclaimed queer, two-spirit Sangoma, that is, South African traditional healer, who is passionate about issues of youth and creative exploration of African spirituality. My guest today is an indigenous knowledge consultant who has embraced their spiritual calling to cultural activism and the use of earth medicine for holistic health and wellness. Their focus is creating an inclusive environment for people to reconnect with and practice their ancestral spiritual and cultural traditions in a modern world through local and international retreats and immersions. Please welcome Gogo Kanyakude. Hello and welcome to my podcast. We finally made it happen. Hello, Tozani. Greetings, beloved. Oh, thank you. It's it's so amazing to to have made this happen because it comes through extraordinary coincidence. Although that that's something we could explore whether there is such a thing. Um, so I was on holiday in South Africa with my family, and I met your lovely brother who became very interested in this podcast because we'd had the guest Bruce Lipton and. Your brother Bongani is into the epigenetics of town planning, which I found fascinating. And then he told me about you and, you know, he said you must meet. And we just instantly clicked, didn't we? So we had a, a very fun time in Cape Town. Um, we've had a few like interesting spiritual conversations since then. So I really just wanted our listeners to be able to learn from you as well. Could you start by telling us a bit about your background, your upbringing, and then what you've studied to get to the place that you're at today? I actually often don't speak around my background and it comes as an interesting invitation now to actually take the story from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I'm born in Bumalanga, in Bombela, Malanga, which is the place of the rising sun. I was born in a very interesting time in our country um, between in 1990 and pre-1994. So mm. apartheid had ended, but we also hadn't moved into democracy. So in our mm-hmm. country, we are referred to as the children of the 1990s as born freeze. I'm oh. born to my mother who in her profession is a primary education specialist. Um, She was the first in her family to receive a university degree in 1994. And to my father, who, Johannes Nsaining, who was a political activist. And at the time of his passing in 1994, 
was primed to actually be the first premier of Mpumalanga. So my background from my maternal side is this very deeply, I could say, um, education rooted, very much, you know, aligned with um, religiosity, coming from a family where a lot of them were very industrious and into entrepreneurship. And from my paternal side, I would say that it's family where it's very humble beginnings, very, very much from a small village in an area where we find God's window. And he then rose to then become this change maker and activist who used his voice to stand up against um, a very, very horrible time in our South African history. Um, And I believe that background for me of having a mother who defied the times that was there, she graduated top of the closet with university and the father who comes from your very humble backgrounds rising up to this political, you know, echelon to become this change maker really informed a lot of how I grew up. So growing up, I was always very outspoken, very, very much from a young age. One of my family's favorite memories is when I was around the age of three. So in 1993, they had the Sharpeville conference where the Tripartite Alliance was meeting to actually decide as to what is the way forward they're going to move into democracy. And my family loves to tell the story of where I ran up to the stage at the end of the conference while all of these political leaders were up there, including Nelson Mandela, grabbed the microphone and started doing these chants of Viva ANC, Viva, Viva, (laughs) Kosatu, Viva, and at the end, I ended it by saying Viva de Clark, who was the previous apartheid um, <laughs> president. And I ran off of stage and <laughs> with this guilty, guilty laugh. And that really, for me, um, introduces a lot of how I grew up from primary to high school, was always involved in public speaking, debating, you know, the creative arts. So activism, speaking out against injustices and just Mm -hmm. challenging the status quo has always been really, really dear to me. And Mm -hmm. even coming to now, when I reflect to that memory, I think around the gift also in my spirituality of prescience, that at the age of three, I was able Mm -hmm. to recognize that while we are moving into a democratic revolution in a country, that still at the back end of it, white supremacy and white capital monopoly is still going to carry on to plague us. Mm -hmm. I won't really go a lot into, into my high school and everything, but what I can share for me, which was particularly I think interesting for myself whenever I reflect back on my upbringing is the fact that I've always been very, very open around the person I've been. So I identify Mm -hmm. as a queer non-binary being and Mm -hmm. I've always been growing up in a very small town. I was very Mm -hmm. much open around my sexual identity and my sexual truth and always Mm -hmm. cultivated for diverse and inclusive spaces within it. When I then got, I finished matric 
which is our equivalent of the end of high school in 2008. My dreams were to become a developmental economist. So I went to UCT, registered to study politics, philosophy, and economics, you know, had all of the makings of it from academic colors, public speaking colors. So UCT was at the time the best varsity in Africa. So I really was sure I had my plan, finished my three-year degree. There was an exchange program that they had with Oxford to go to then Oxford to do my honors in Oxford. From there, moved to New York to work either at the UN or at the Developmental Bank for a couple of years and then come back to to do um, parastatal work in and around Africa, around developmental mm-hmm. economics. So that was the trajectory that I, I had for myself. When I arrived, though, in Cape Town, I went through this complete 360, this shift from having been a very square child in terms of the everyday things, you know, studious, very committed to doing and achieving to suddenly becoming the social being who was going out every night, not attending lectures, um, just flourishing, flourishing, flourishing in what I, I accepted at, at the time as a late rebellion. Mm. That continued for the most of 2009. And at the end of the first year, for the first time in my life, I actually failed. And I had to do summer school to be able to continue um, at varsity. And that really challenged how the ideation I had around myself. And I started to introspect as to, though I felt no guilt around the exploration and everything, as I said, I was like, yeah, this is my late, late rebellion. I never had an opportunity to rebel. But also at the same time, I started to question a lot of my path and my purpose because I was mm-hmm. very clear that moved to Cape Town, moved to London, moved to New York. And I suddenly mm-hmm. felt challenged by being so far away from family in Cape mm-hmm. Town with my family being back in Pumalanga. And I proposed to then my family that perhaps I should move to Johannesburg, which is three and a half hours away from home. Mm-hmm. Also, that wasn't very much well received when, because you see, when you're raised in a certain way in your family and you have also been embodying that, I've mentioned how strong world I am, they felt mm-hmm. that it was perhaps me meeting life's challenges and wanting to cower away. So I was gently or not so gently encouraged to go back. That was, I think, one of of the most profound moments of where I really got to understand what my rebellion outside of even what is societally expected looks like. Mm. Because I Mm -hmm. took the decision that since I'm being, I must go back and I'm not interested in doing this and being in the space, I'll just be in Mm. Cape Town and I'll self-sabotage that by the time the middle, the end of the first semester came, I was academically excluded. And I called my parents and I had booked my flight and I was like, I'm coming back home. I told you I don't want to come to Cape Town. 
you pushed me and now I'm coming back home. But fret not, next year will continue with what I had decided for myself. And I've already applied to university, to the University of Johannesburg, and I will then continue my studies there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Little did I know. In 2011, when I moved to Johannesburg, Johannesburg is a very vibrant city. I mean, it's much, much more diverse than what Cape Town is, much, much more fast-paced being called mm-hmm. the New York of Africa. But what mm-hmm. then transpired during that year is that I completely fell mm-hmm. out of interest with, with the whole idea of studying, but I didn't have a way to really express it to my family and to my, to, to those close to me. So the rebellion continued. I continued partying, making all of these great friends, going on all of these experiences, you know, focused on dating. Oh my, I mean, I met some amazing, amazing boys during that year and <laughs> went into many fulfilling experiences like that. But long and short, that really gave a pause to my formal academic um, sort of pursuits in 2011, mm-hmm. where how we internalized it or accepted it as a family was that perhaps I'm not made out to go through the container of university because of my intellect and my rebellious nature. And mm-hmm. perhaps it would be better if I went the other way of getting a job and then from there going to then find what it is that is truly my passion. Mm. That also didn't land. I got my first um, internship at Vodacom. I remember they had a youth thing. Vodacom is a telecommunications network. I mm-hmm. went there the first day when we had orientation and we had to do, we had to do one of those, um, tests where there's just an aptitude test around what are your gifts and all of that was finished in all of 10 minutes and it was supposed to be an hour. So I go to oh. my supervisor and I ask, I'm done now. Can I, can I leave? And my supervisor was like, no, you have to stay here the whole hour. That's just how it works in this container. Mm. I literally stayed that hour, stayed that day. And I decided that "Mm, this is also (laughs) not for me at all, at all, at all. No. What I, I skipped over was that I'd also moved away from home and was staying in Kempton Park. You'll be familiar with Kempton Park because when you fly in South Africa, you fly in through Oratambu. And what is interesting about Kempton Park is that you find a lot of um, diaspora people in Kempton Park. So you, a lot of people mm. from West Africa, from all mm-hmm. parts of Africa. So mm. where I was staying, I started having this strong, strong curiosity with just that Africanity immersing in West African culture, the food. And that became sort of my journey from 2012 until 2013. And during that time also, I started going to a lot of destructive habits. I mean, there was flirtations with drug use, um, drinking, really, really going into the underworld and going into... A dark night of the soul, which I didn't recognize. 
up until I had to catch myself and pause in 2013 when one of my friends who I was staying with at the time and she, um, she was a sex worker and she still actually currently is, was mm-hmm. so concerned with me and was like, you know, I've met your family, I've met your friends and this is not your world. This is not your background. And I'm so concerned and I think you need to really go home. She broke wow. down and cried and begged me for, of me to go back home and to leave the what we call the street life. Yeah. And from that, something something within me allowed for it to happen. I returned back home to where my mom had moved to Pretoria to Pretoria and I started introspecting and framing just 2009 to 2013 and mm-hmm. asking myself as to, so this is how you have known yourself and now this is who you have become. Mm-hmm. Yet there is this discomfort around something which is missing. Mm-hmm. And what my mom would often reflect was that she feels as though I'm just floating and I'm not grounded. There's a grounding and a rooting that I need to seek. And mm-hmm. perhaps that prompt in my inner subconscious started to unlock the wheel of, you know, coincidentality, reciprocity, synchronicities, mm. where mm. I started to ask myself, what am I unbecoming to become? And mm. the answer for me came in the form of a book I had brought, bought in grade 11 by Bab Credo Mutwa, written in Daba My Children which is an anthology of um, African mythology, cosmology, mm. and folklore um, that focuses on Southern Africa. So okay. I took that book, and he's a shaman, a Sangoma, and I read the book, and for the first time, I didn't read it as mythology or as folklore. I read mm. it and I received it as him sharing his journey with mm-hmm. African spirituality and mm. everything which was there, the signs of awakening, the signs of a calling, the symptoms. Mm. I found myself and I was like, oh my word, I have the calling to initiate. I'm supposed to be a Sangoma. Wow. This is what's been going on with me. I've been unbecoming so that I could find my path. And now the difficulty within that was I had such a strong, strong resonance with it. But having grown up in a very Eurocentric, um, you know, home and all of the aspirations being very much uh, around modernity, hadn't Mm. grown up in a family that was really rooted within tradition and customs and all of that. So it Mm -hmm. was now around how am I going to communicate this to those close to me? And I love how my brother Bungani is the one that has led for this connection because he was yeah. also one of the first people I felt safe with for my community to share with. Oh. I recall in 2013, which was my 23rd birthday, we went out mm-hmm. with him and my sister and I shared with them that day that, guys, I have the calling to initiate and I'm going, I have a sense I'm going to initiate 
pretty soon because yeah. also during that time I had started to develop this sort of inner knowing where I would mm. just know what people are going to say. I would sometimes respond before people had even asked the questions. I wow. developed this this just affinity to sleeping on the ground, to walking barefoot, all mm. of these very out-of-character ways of relating, to which mm. I felt that because they had been questioning as to you're sort of weird. What is going on with you? I felt safe mm. to share. Yeah. And from that share, I remember we went out and we called it now to this day, my sign out, where I was like, I'm signing out because pretty soon I'm going to be going to initiate. Mind you, I didn't know what initiation looks like, where you go to initiate and how all of this was going to happen. But mm. I had this keen keen knowing that this is what is going was on the cards for me yeah and lo and behold a month later like they always say when the student is ready the teacher appears mm. so how did my teacher appear i recall my mom sharing with her that this is what's going on and her then saying to me that i really don't believe this is what it is. But when she was at varsity, the house, um, the house mother of the, of the race she was in is a relative mm -hmm. from my paternal side and she is initiated. So my mom called her and mm -hmm. as chance would happen, would have it. She actually had initiates who were about to graduate from initiation back home in Pumalanga and Bushpark Ridge. So she said to my mom, you know what? Um, bring him over. Let's, 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 let's have a divination and let's actually get to the bottom of what this is. Mm. And that was, that was the doorway that opened everything. She, funny enough, would not be my teacher, but at her students' graduation, mm -hmm. two of the guests who came over invited by other healers, not only turned out to be relatives of hers, but also turned out to that my teacher, my Kobela, actually had initiated in a, in my aunt's grandfather. Oh. And that's how I met, I, I met my teacher. Wow. We had an instantaneous connection and it was, that's the part that started the journey where I am now as Koko Kanyagute, who is a Sangoma, which is a shaman, and mm. also somebody who works within then wellness and indigenous mm. ways of being and knowing. Amazing story. Some of that I didn't, uh, quite a lot of that I didn't know, actually. So I'm, I'm glad I asked. And thank you for sharing, because I know, like you said, that you haven't always before. So you've, you've used some words that um, might not be familiar to people who haven't spent a lot of time in Africa or South Africa. So could you tell us a little bit more in with the African context, what it means to be a Sangoma? So that's, yes, it's like a, a shaman, but I think in our minds, we often associate that with South America. So I'd love to know what our version is. And then what exactly is initiation? Um, I don't know how much you're allowed to share about what happened, but obviously we'd love to know. And then just to hear more about African spirituality and how our listeners can 
glean any nuggets of wisdom from that for their own struggles that they may be experiencing in the modern world? Let me start with the word togoza. Togoza is the customary greeting that we greet within the fraternity of Sangoma. And mm -hmm. togoza means be happy, be well. Similar to how in Buddhist traditions you have the greeting of um, Namaste or how in Ifa you have the greeting of Ashe. So it's a greeting which is passed on not just to you, the person, but also to the spirits, the energies and the ancestors that you walk with. So when we ask, what is a Sangoma? It's one of my most beautiful things around how our African languages are embodied. So Sangoma means person of song and dance and drum. Sangoma also means a person of the sun. So mm -hmm. in our language, Isangoma refers to I who carries the gift of ancestry. Ingoma refer, um, refers to song, which in South American Curandero, they speak of as Icaros which I understood to be songs that carry a certain vibration that's able to shift mental states, shift physical states as a, as a tool and a technology of healing. So mm. a Sangoma uses song and dance to be able to interpolate messages from the ancestral realm, from the spiritual realm, also to be able to use sound as an alchemy of healing certain mental diseases, certain physical ailments. And wow. within that, also to be able to then tap into the essence of divin divination. Mm -hmm. So we use song and dance to basically connect with the essence mm. of self and the essence of all things and all beings. That for me is what... A Sangoma, I would say a Sangoma is. Mm. Within yeah. the journey of Sangoma, we each then are called with a particular purpose within which we are called to serve. Some mm -hmm. Sangomas are called in and they will be diviners where people have challenges and questions where they're seeking and you go to that particular Sangoma and they're able to divine those issues. They're able to then give you guidance. Other Sangomas are gifted with the gift of, of, of working with Bunyanga, Bunyanga being the moon coming to completion, which is what it means in our language. And practically what that is, is being an ethno-medicinal practitioner where you use um, earth allies, plant allies to be mm -hmm. able to heal certain mental, emotional and physical and spiritual ailments or states and challenges in people's lives. Other Sangomas are called to come and be custodians of the Ngoma, of the song, which is walking mm -hmm. others through the journey of initiation and training others of the younger generation or those called behind. Other Zangomas are called in to come and also receive the medicine of being rooted within your identity, but to continue to go into what we could say is mainstream spaces, but as a yeah. form, as a tool or as a body of decoloniality within those spaces which they occupy. And this is not an either or or just limited mm -hmm. to that as each of us carry different varying elements within that. 
I myself work within the realm of divination. I do also work within the realm of working with plant medicines. And I also mm -hmm. am a Kobela, which is an elder that initiates other people. But mm -hmm. what I feel is my unique gift that I've been called into is having grown up from a very multi-ethnic, multi-racial background where mm. I speak of my mom interchangeably. I actually have two mothers, one who's white and one who's black. Um, I've had yeah. this very diverse upbringing where mm. in a lot of my work, I'm called into mainstream spaces, much like yours, where then mm. I start to offer the medicine of indigenous ways of being and knowing as a contemporary yeah. solution to living issues and as a, a path that is open that we can come back to, to the wisdom of the body and the wisdom of the earth and the wisdom of our ancestors of antiquity. So I often call myself a weaver of divergent worlds. Yeah. And that is my unique gift and calling within Bungoma. This is exactly everything that I wanted for this podcast. Just, you know, like the idea as it was forming and, and it was obviously around the time that I met you as well of, of being able to access that ancient wisdom, the ancestors returning to nature. It's crazy to me how suddenly it's this new thing in neuroscience, how important art and dance and music is for our well-being and our longevity. We've known, we've always known this, but we've become so disconnected from it and, and, so, you know, getting to showcase someone like you is so important to me in terms of, I believe that is the way to help people to, you know, find themselves again, reinvent themselves, um, be more well. I wasn't going to mention it unless you did, but around the time that you were born and a child, because it was so close to the end of apartheid, it must have been very unusual for you to become part of a white, and it's an Afrikaans family, right? Mm -hmm. mm. At what age did you acquire your white mother and and how has she been part of this journey of, of self-discovery for you? It's actually very interesting that I've always had her from when I was in my mom's belly. Lydia Pretorius is my Afrikaans mom. Mm -hmm. I'll give a bit of background around her. She actually comes from the Pretorius family, which is the founding family of Pretoria and one of the great poor tracks. Her father was the treasurer of the apartheid, um, you know, um, South Africa. Her mm -hmm. uncle was um, the secretary of defense and her other uncle was then the, the head of the land bank. So that is her background, grew, grew up in Pretoria, in deep mm -hmm. Afrikaanerville, and she chose a different journey. Yeah. And she studied occupational therapy, moved to, um, ultimately moved to Mpumalanga, where she met my dad in 1988. Mm -hmm. My dad was already in a relationship with my biological mom at the time, but was also, of course, in Africa, the idea of mon mm. monogamy is not really so solid. Also was no. pursuing a relationship with Lydia. So there was always a relationship which was there in a rapport between my mom and Lydia. 
And mm-hmm. from when I was pregnant, from when I was born, I would always go and visit from as early as the age of one year old. So there okay. was always a, co- a shared co-parenting. How it came mm-hmm. about, though, that this relationship was solidified was on my father's deathbed, he actually asked for her to take a vow that she would promise to take me as her child and to, mm-hmm. and like, I guess, spiritually adopt me, not taking yeah. me away from my mom. Yeah. And how then it ended up me moving to stay with Lydia full time was from 95, my birth mom started to have challenges you know, with bipolar and mental illness and um, okay. because of family stigma within African um, within mm. African families, there was a lot of alienation where I had to often take care of myself as a child up until mm-hmm. my mom decided that the best thing for me to do while she was still coming to full wellness within, within the, the challenges she was facing was to ask of Lydia if she would be willing to take care of me where it would be a co-parenting thing. And it also made sense as it was closer to school. And this was at the age of eight. So from around age eight up until I finished matric in grade 12, most the bulk of then my childhood was shared between them where my mom would come and I would go and I'd sometimes go to my mom. But because of my affinity to Eurocentricism and, you know, my mm. aspiration to whiteness, I preferred to stay more with Lydia. Yeah. And what is interesting, though, about it is that Lydia was actually the opposite because she's so pan-Africanist. And yeah. she w- would constantly take such exception to my to my Eurocentricism, to my disassociation from my blackness, from my culture and not wanting Mm -hmm. to be in black spaces because Mm -hmm. she always viewed it as internalized oppression. And whereas my birth mom also at the time really did encourage for me to actually root myself more around Eurocentric aspirations and those communities, Mm. because that's also what made sense for her. Mm. Yeah. What was best for you? And, and so, Bongani and you, you share Lydia as your as your mum, right? Yes. So he comes from another family, but your brothers because of Lydia. Yes. Which, and I've said this to you before, but I really would love to meet her the next time I come to South Africa. She sounds such an amazing, inspirational woman. Um, so, okay, something's come up that I think is really interesting, which is that you had this time as a younger child where you were part of a white family, you you were like rejecting your blackness. But then you had that time later in Kempton Park where you discovered, you know, like not just Southern African culture, but like West Africa and and really immersed yourself into that. So what what do you think what do you think that's about? How much is I mean, it's a million dollar question in South Africa, obviously, with the legacy of apartheid, but how much do you think that is connected to the rest of your story, like your rebellious phase, your your time of, you know, of enlightenment, understanding you've come out of the underworld and that you're going to be initiated into African spirituality? Um, how I always view just my journey is that there was it was an initiation because we are always going through the cycles of initiation mm-hmm. where um, my dad coming from a rural background, my 
birth mom being rooted within more of a township, you know, um, background, also having grown up within this um, suburban sort of context with Lydia going to university and then staying within a cosmopolitan urban background, moving to Kempton Park. It was an initiation into all of the aspects of community within which reflect globally, those are the spaces. Mm. We have rural, we have, you know, you have whatever version of township mm. would be called. We have your suburban, mm. and have your urban spaces. Mm. And the moving between the multi-ethnicity, because from my mom's side, they are Swati and Monguni orientated. My paternal side is more Sutu, but also in our, going back into our lineage, there's the Mozambican ancestry that runs through, Malawian ancestry that runs through, okay. and Zimbabwean mm -hmm. ancestry that runs through. So mm -hmm. how I view, and even within both sides, there is also white ancestry, which is there the Scottish from both sides and also then the English from my paternal side as well because of the colonizers and everything that happened. So yeah. I often view my whole life's journey as needing to sort of round around all of those diverse identities and, and mm -hmm. beings that exist within me and the need to sort of maybe firstly be strongly rooted and aspire to, to whiteness was very necessary so that I could experience the disillusionment so that mm. I could start to come back to seeing the value around not just blackness, because for me, I don't identify necessarily as black. I soon identify as an indigenous person with indigeneity mm -hmm. and indigenous mm -hmm. ways of being and knowing, which is what my mm -hmm. journey with meeting the West Africans really represented. I had never mm. met African people who are so proud of their culture, so rooted in their identity that they carry the entire culture with them even when they move to a new country. I mean, yeah. in Kempton Park, there's West Street, which is like a little Lagos. You can mm. find almost everything that you would find in Lagos. And that was so inspiring for me, even though I didn't have the language or the noticing mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. time to name it like that. But subconsciously, yeah. it was the process of journeying, initiating and beginning the process of decoloniality. I mean, I guess it's a bit like shadow work, isn't it? That was in your shadow in terms of race, very obviously, because of all these different um, environments that you're in. But I, I guess it must have made it maybe... Well, easier for you to be more fluid in your sexuality and in your like personality and as well because you kind of you were going round and round so like does it make sense to you that it also connects up to your view of sexuality which is that it doesn't have to be so fixed and grounded necessarily definitely I love how you're using the word round for me it's I would use the word spiral there's a spiral okay. that just, that just moves through and when we go into the sacred geometry of all things, there is this universality of the spiral or the circular mm. nature mm. of all things and all beings. When you cut, come into the grand architecture and design of all things and this journeying into 
these parts of you mentioning the shadow work, I I mean, I what drew me closer to, to whiteness was the fact that from the Pretoria side, there were journals and books that could trace the family tree all the way from here in South Africa, going all the way back in Europe. There were such mm. formalized ways in terms of what was written and what then coming into this now cultural space of seeing that our traditions are more orally rooted and they passed mm. on through orature was mm. was what ultimately brought me back to my gift, as I'm saying, which is my voice. It is my mm. medicine. And mm. that was how the shadow work for me was like a spiral that was just always yeah. shifting. And I think what I'm really feeling that people could take away from that is that even if you're not understanding what something is at the time, even if you're rejecting something that's a part of you or your life, it will make sense later. It will it will bring you to the place that, that you're meant to be. Your fluidity is not just in terms of sexual orientation, as I mentioned, but also in terms of your gender identity. And we had a really interesting conversation about femininity once where I said to you, I guess there is one really obvious difference, which is that men are physically stronger than women. And you said, it depends how you define strength. And if you define strength by the ability to endure pain, then maybe it's quite a different story. And that just really got me thinking. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And then, yes, it'd be lovely to get your tangible takeaways for listeners of the podcast. What for me, as you're actually bringing me back to to when I speak and it is both myself, but ourselves actually sharing. In my personal view, when we often think of strength, because we live in such a material, you know, um, imperial capitalist industrial complex world, we think mm -hmm. around doing and doing and doing. And doing is just an outward expression. For me, femininity really speaks to the overall sense of the human condition, the deep being which runs the undercurrent which exists within all beings. Mm. Where to also to not create comparison, but to just name it that often those born in male bodies and those who also identify as cis heteronormative my strength mm. is the fact that I can lift so many weights, you know, I can bench this much. But even if you mm. just take it from gym, so many of those male bodies, if you bring them and you invite them perhaps maybe to a yoga class or to Pilates, mm. where it's not about the major muscles, the overstated, getting into the minor and going into control, that mm. they often are so challenged by that type of strength, that mm -hmm. subtle strength that requires control as opposed mm -hmm. to overt assertion and force. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. on a physical level for me where even like practices such as yoga and um, Pilates carry for me a very feminine vibration within them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we go into even childbirth or... um you know, mm. cycling with the moon, going ovulating, 
there's so many studies which you will be familiar with. And I've seen so many TikToks where they'll put this on male bodies and give them a slight taste of what it feels like to ovulate or to give birth. And that ability to hold is just, it's just not there. Mm. When we go into then our history or our ancestry as humanity, while the men were out waging wars, you know, dominating the world, creating these new worlds, it is the strength of the women and the divine feminines who turned towards nature and nurturing that were able to then hold in the absence of these divine protectors, but became their protectors. And especially for me within a South African context where majority of South Africans grow up without a male figure in their presence. Mm-hmm. Yet we look at how many powerful, powerful global figures role models come from Southern Africa, how Southern Africa is celebrated as the only even African country part of BRICS alongside Russia, India, China, which are all superpowers, I mean. And we go back to where does that come from? The subtle strength Mm. of femininity embodied within women, but not only exclusive within women. So it is that ability to hold, that quality to hold, that quality to be in in, in engineering and crafty and creative, even in a time of lack that exists within Mm -hmm. the feminine vibration for me, which speaks to the strength, the true strength that human humanity and the human condition has always called upon for us to carry on throughout all of the things that we've experienced. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that. I, I really wanted to to include that as a sort of, you know, thinking point for people because it's. I, I feel like it's, you know, kind of showing up more strongly in the world again. As we come towards the end of this episode, I would love to hear some tangible takeaways for people from your knowledge of how we can reconnect to and practice ancestral cultural traditions to help with modern world issues and struggles? Such a beautiful um, question and one that I often share to people that ancestral connection is ultimately around the essence of who we are. Mm -hmm. Because at the human condition, we are always asking ourselves this existential crisis of why am I here? What is my path? What is my purpose? And a lot of it is carried within this very body available to us through this body and what this body carries. If we think about it from a features level, we inherit so much of our physical features from living and past ancestors. When we speak around sort of intergenerational transference and inheritance, Mm -hmm. we can even inherit traumas and wounds Mm -hmm. and even traits and characters, not just negative, but also positive gifts from our ancestry. Mm. So the first doorway for me always to share with people is around what ancestry represents and understanding your lineage, both from a nucleus family, but also from an ethnic background, 
from a mm-hmm. racial background is you are able to start to identify the wounds within which you need to tend to. You are able to recognize and source the gifts, the characters, the traits, and some of the behaviors within which you have inherited from this anthology of ancestral bodies which run through your blood, run through your bones, Mm. run through your physical self. That Mm. is the, the everyday which is available. And often... What it does is that it gives us a more empowered sense of self. Because if you don't know where you come from, how can you be clear around where it is that you're going? Mm. When we then go into some of the technologies or the practices that come from them, from ancestral wisdom traditions, what that teaches us is to return to the wisdom of the body. Mm -hmm and the wisdom of the earth. For me, in my Mm. journey of initiation, I learned very practical tools, how not to Mm. live against nature or the natural world Mm. or to want to master nature. What could be said Mm. to, in in modern language, we speak around rewilding. I learned how Mm. to cook from a fire. I learned how to to work the earth and to grow my own food. I learned how to take care of livestock. I learned how to forage for um for medicines that can heal everyday ailments, can allow for me to access higher states of myself, can help to ground me. So I got mm-hmm. to learn how I'm perfectly held and supported by this very earth without having to go mm-hmm. out and feed into the consumer complex of capitalism a sustainable type of living. That is what Mm -hmm. ancestral wisdom lineages teach. When it comes to also how we can live our life, it changes the everyday mundane and makes us start to see that all around our life is a rite of passage. From when we are born, there is, it's a rite of passage of coming in and how can we honor that? How can we elevate that as a significant sign point and a positive mark of identification through which in religion, it could be a baptism in our wisdom tradition. It could be a ceremony that brings together family and community and a naming ceremony to celebrate. That is ritual. How in our everyday daily activities, such as connecting with the elemental forces of creation, such as taking a bath, is actually Mm. connecting with the wisdom of water. How Mm. in that moment of cleansing yourself, you can imbue a ritualistic quality to call upon the elemental force of water to not Mm. just be a superficial activity of I'm bathing so that I am clean, but that I'm actually getting into a space of meditation I'm calling upon Mm. the flowing of the water to bring in flow into my thoughts, to bring in flow into my emotion and to Mm. bring a vibrancy into my overall state. This is, this is what for me ancestral wisdom lineages really offer to us is that transformative quality to be able to see the illusion that we craft for ourselves in always being obsessed around 
doing and striving for the external and not seeing that all about us is spirit and all about us is an invitation to rise up to a place of really seeing our lives as a ceremony and seeing our actions as a ritual that we can offer to the wellness of self and to the wellness of those around us. I love that. There's there's definitely something about ritual and ceremony that's very intriguing to me. And, I, and I'm not sure how much it's related to my, you know, ethnic culture. But the things that you've said, they're, they're so simple in a way, but we all need to make, you know, more effort to keep connected to those things or reconnect to those things. I know that you do um, sessions with people remotely as well as in person. So could you please tell our listeners where they can find you, how they can follow your work, how they could get in touch if they um, were interested in actually doing some of these rituals and ceremonies with you? So currently I'm really, I am a, I am a millennial and as millennials, we are part of the generation that is really big on social entrepreneurship and using the digital space to really connect. Mm. So mm -hmm. for people, um, my social media platforms is always the easiest way to connect through me where then you'll find links to how it is that you can then get directly to me. I'm available at on at Goko underscore Kanyagude, which I'm sure that um, will be shared also in the podcast um, with the right sharing. Yeah. And from those yeah. platforms, people can really just follow me on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter, or is it X? I also have a YouTube channel <laughs> where I share on those platforms as well. And okay, great. Yes. As ever, it was absolutely wonderful to just be in your presence and gain from your knowledge and wisdom. I have to plan my next trip, but I can't wait to see you when I'm next in South Africa. And just thank you so much. Thank you so much, beloved. It's always such an honor to experience your your grace, your your natural just love that flows through your speech. There's such a, a heart-centered approach, and my heart is always full from every time we just share space. Same, same. If you have a question or comment for me, please email or send an audio recording of your question to drtara at knox.studio. This has been Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara, a Knox Studios podcast. <laughs>